Thanks for joining us today to hear our latest Hope Central podcast. We trust this message will help you know more about Jesus and inspire you to be more like Him. Wonderful to see you. Uh, Great to be back from holidays, but very good to be able to have a holiday and hang out with the whole crew. I got COVID. (laughs) Congratulate me. Yes, it's my first time. And now I hear what you guys, I know what you guys are all raving about. So, you know, whinging and moaning and complaining. I was there with you. So thank you. Thank you. I got it from my grandson, I think, which is also a fantastic award, I think, you know. Got to console him through the sufferings and got to share in his sufferings. So it was wonderful. Hey, um, we are doing a series this summer. It's a casual sort of series about being together, and it's called Better Together. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. Um, but I, I think I want to take a little slightly a different turn on this. And hopefully by the end, you'll appreciate where I went with that. And part of the reason that I'm doing this is because um, uh, we've been, I've been preparing all the notes for uh, our upcoming new um, Bible college, the MTS that we'll be launching at the end of January. And uh, for all of those who put your hand up and those who are still thinking about it, we'd love to have you join us. But it's caused me to do a ton of extra study and a lot of reflection and also spending a lot of extra time with my new favorite author, who is G.K. Chesterton. And if you don't know who that is, that's okay. You're not, that just proves that you're not a geek. Um, that you're not some sort of a theology geek. Uh, But G.K. Chesterton has so many clever insights on the nature of God that um, one of them has really, really touched me. And to do that, we're just going to talk about one of these things that Jesus taught us. And so Jesus, and this is probably well known to you if you've been in Christianity for a while, but hopefully you can see a little slightly different angle on that as we talk about being together. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, this is actually a vision statement in in a form. It's Jesus kind of telling everybody, telegraphing to the world, telling us all his full intentions. He's trying to help us understand what he's really about and what he's really doing. And he also knows that he is the only person that can pull this off. So he's got this special vision and purpose and plan given to him by God the Father, and he's expressing it in this way, I am the good shepherd. And I want to break down some of these ideas that are expressed here. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he's hinting at something that the the book of John actually has picked up along the way, and that is Jesus is referring to himself as I am. And if you're not a biblical nerd, like if you're not always reading the Old Testament and stuff, you won't know that this phrase, I am, is actually the name that God gave to himself when he revealed himself to Moses. He called himself the I am. Or it actually is the I am that I am, meaning that God is saying to, to Moses, the God that you are speaking to right now is not some God that depended upon other gods or powers to exist. I am the great I am. Uh, and there was probably no other way to say that in language that expresses the fact that God doesn't come from anywhere. When I, when I was, uh, uh, when my children were in, oh, Charlotte was in year three, I got invited to uh, their, uh, her school at Easter time as a pastor to explain the Easter story to the year threes. And they put them all together in one class. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. And so 
when I, when I went along, I explained the whole thing of the cross and explained how Jesus had to die. And then, and then we had a question time afterwards. I thought, that's great. What are year threes going to ask me? Number one question, first question, who made God? <laughs> and I said, well, that's, that's the great thing about that question is the God we're talking about is the only one that is unmade. The, everything else in existence is made. Like all of the universe, all the stars, the galaxies, the space in between the stars, the fundamental principles of physics, everything about this universe and everything that exists within it was all made. But there is one who stands outside of that, and he is the maker of all things, and he is the one who is unmade. So when Jesus calls himself the I am, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's saying that I am existent. I am pre-existent. I am existing on my own. And that opens up to us a perfect idea. And that is that Jesus does not need you. He is. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of wake up in the morning and go, oh, what's my purpose? What am I around for? What am I doing? He doesn't feel alone. He doesn't feel as though he's kind of less than any other thing. That everything that Jesus is, he is complete already. And then in that completion... He makes us. It is the one who needs no one shepherds all. And because he is shepherd of all, he must make a flock. And so he says, I am the good shepherd. And he makes us and he shepherds us. And I love that. Um, uh, again, a G.K. Chesterton idea. He's saying that the idea of, he says in one point of the everlasting man, he says, the idea of man, a man becoming a father, means that he takes charge to guard and to guide that which he has made. Because there's no reason for humanity to take care of itself. But the idea of becoming a man means that we take care of the other, to guard and to guide that which we have made. And there's no evolutionary reason for that to happen. In fact, in most of the animal population of the world, once the father, once the male has propagated, he's off, you know? They're just doing their own thing. But, you know, when you hear stories as a Canadian little boy, you hear stories about be careful the mama bear, because if you get between the mama bear and the cub, you are going to get mauled by mama bear and crying cub. Do you know that? Like, so I feel like I'm explaining Canadian culture to a lot of people since that TV series alone has been out. Because be all people watch alone and all they hear about is, there's bears, there's bears. I can't believe there's bears. Do you see any bears in that show? No. Because bears see you, you won't see them. They, they are very, you know, they don't come around. But I feel like I'm always explaining. But everybody, every young child knows, every Canadian child knows that you don't become between a mama bear and the baby bear. Because where's Papa Bear? He is off in the forest doing his own thing. Right? He don't care about nothing. You go and threaten his little baby bear, he's like, dude, I'm fishing. <laughs> Don't bug me. I'm just fattening up for the next hibernation round, okay? Which is apparently a lot of us are doing. So, <laughs> all right, there we go. Finding your sense of humor. It's there, you'll find it, it's okay. So, but Jesus is the one who takes responsibility to guide and to guard that which he has made. So he chooses to shepherd us because he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be part of a flock. And that is really, really substantial. Because 
in reality, when human beings are born because of the sinful nature, we naturally separate ourselves from others because of the sinful nature. We take care of ourselves. We look after number one. We're interested in ourselves. And so Jesus says, I'm going to do something to humanity that is completely unique. I'm going to pull everybody into one flock. And that requires there to be others. You see, that's the point about better together, is that being better together is not about what is good for me. It's becoming aware of what is happening in other people and being a part of other people as a choice, as a purpose. As an expression of our worship and our love for God, we become aware and supportive of the other in our world. One of the things that G.K. Chesterton points out in his book, Orthodoxy, is that he's, he was reflecting on all the different gods that are presented in, through the different religions. His book, Orthodoxy, is really a story about uh, the different ideas that brought him into Christianity and then into a relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that he talks about in his books is he says that when he really considered uh, Buddhist uh, statues, Buddhist uh, pictures, Buddhist art, that one thing was consistent in the Buddhist representation of a spiritual person. And one thing was always consistent in Christian art for Christian saints. So I put up two representations. And as you look at those two pictures, can you tell what he might be pointing out? Moment to think, moment to think. It's the eyes. He says, whenever he considered or, or looked at a Buddhist person trying to represent what it means to seek God, the Buddhist person has always got their eyes closed, searching inward. And whenever there's a Christian person seeking for God, seeking for the eternal, their eyes are always open. Because he says, God is not an individual one. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, God is Trinity. And that means that what God, in order to have relationship, God is having relationship by reaching outwards. He is open. And those who seek for God must have their eyes open because God is not found within us. God is found as he truly is in himself. And so we reach out. The otherness is the searching for others. Oh, boy, I don't know if I'm explaining this really well. Are you getting my point? Can you just nod and smile and go like, oh, yeah, he tried. He took a swing at it. You know, just went to first base and he's out. But it's okay. All right, sorry, that was baseball. So as Jesus is explaining, I am the good shepherd and my, oh, sorry, I know my own and my own are, know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, in this otherness, we are introduced to this idea that we are to know another and to be known by another. One of the things that I think that humanity does really, 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 really badly at is being known. Like, when you chose to how to greet and how to talk to people today, 
Most of the way that you expressed yourself to others kept the secret things of your heart completely secret to them. Whenever we meet and interact with other people, we do our best to put on what is good and what is, you know, acceptable for others to see, what is acceptable for others to know, because we are constantly working at making sure people like us, people appreciate us. I mean, just look at the posts that are on Facebook and Instagram. It's one constant filtering, not just of your appearance, but of all the things in your life so that you present yourself as acceptable, as lovable, as good. And you never, ever put up the things that might shame you, that things that might cause you to be uh, rejected, the things that might be you to be looked down upon. And then we're doing this constantly. And the whole problem with that is that in the end, that nobody knows you. Could I ask you this question? Does anybody really know you? Know everything about you? Know the secrets of your heart. Know the worst thing about you. And still accept you. Now the, the thing about that is that if you don't actually reveal yourself at that level with some other person, and I'm not saying to do it for many, but if you never actually reveal yourself at that level to anyone and receive love, then you will always have this secret thought in your heart. If people knew what I was really like, they wouldn't love me. You always have a pre-rejection going on. And because of that, you're not really known. But Jesus comes in the complete opposite stance. He is like, I am not keeping anything secret about who I am. Everything about me, every part of me, all of my glory, I am going to fully share with you. Now, of course, he had no bad side. You know that? Right, Jesus is not going, well, don't tell anybody about this, but no, everything about God, everything about his father, everything about who he is, Jesus fully wants us to know. There was nothing to be, to be hidden. He wants us to embrace all that he is, but he also needs to embrace all that you are. He has to fully know. Every, now, here's the real secret. He already knows everything about you. The only person that's not acknowledging that is perhaps you. God knows your secret sin. Now, listen. And he fully loves you because you are known and loved. But you are also separate from him. You are his, but you are also his possession. You are not himself. You are still separate so that he will always keep you separate so that he can love you. And I think that is the real key here is that Jesus Christ is trying to unite us with the Father, with himself, and with one another. And he does that all by dying on the cross for us. So John goes on and he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. There was, again, division among the Jews because of these words. So we have, in this conversation, we have the other. The father and the son. And the son is making a full choice. It's so a lot of people, and again, this is, I go back to my year three experience. Why, who made God? Question number one. Question number two, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? 
as though these, the children that were asking the question were thinking that perhaps it had been kind of accidental or somehow a murder or something that God hadn't planned. And I needed them to understand that, no, the death of Jesus is the full desire of God. It is the expression of God's love that has been fully realized when Christ said, I must die. He's saying, nobody's doing this to me. I am doing this. And I think one of the most amazing things about this is this is absolutely important to him, to the Father and to the Son. And could you just ask yourself why? Why is this? You know, Jesus says, the reason that the Father loves me is that I lay down my life for the sheep. How many, how many of you have got children, right? What do you find pleasurable in them? What gets your full approval? I know that when Lil and I are chatting, that we'll oftentimes do the numbers together because we both like economics. We both like planning the money, accounting, counting. We like counting. And we'll kind of, you know, compare notes about that because for me and her, one of the things that we really find pleasure in is the wise use of money. It makes us feel good. And I, she feels my pleasure, and I feel her pleasure, and together we're pleased, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, are you with me so far? All right. Okay. I have another daughter, Charlotte, and her love, her passion is helping people, especially psychologically. She, she's an occupational therapist, and she spends her time working with families and children that are struggling. Uh, and their mental health is really important to them. She loves it. She talks about it. She thinks about it. She reads about it. She studies about it. She's doing her master's. She's just working always at... When we sit down together, we compare notes about human psychology because we both love that. So what I love in her is that she's super gifted and super interested in helping other people in their, in their mental health. I also love that. So we both share that together. Now, here's the thing. The thing that Jesus says, I want to stand this out and make this known to everybody in the world is that I'm dying for the world and that is what the Father loves most about me. Not most, but that's what Jesus chose to emphasize. I lay down my life for these sheep. Why is that so important to them? You see, the only time, the only time in the entire Gospels in the whole story of Jesus, the only time that Jesus did not call God Father was when he was on the cross. His whole life, every part of his life, every moment of his life, everything in his heart, everything about him is the Father and I are one. We are one. He's my Father. I'm the Son. We're united. We are together. I only do what he does. I only think what he does. I only say what he says to say. We and the Father are one. Nothing can separate us. We are Father and Son together forever. Yay, yay, yay. Cue the music. Except for when he's on the cross. Because when he's on the cross, it says, it, this is at the time of his death, now, from the sixth hour, that would be 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. That would be three o'clock for us. And about the nine o'clock hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, that's an Aramaic phrase. It's not Hebrew, and it's not Greek, and it's not English, obviously. But it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one and only time 
that Jesus ever referred to God as an impersonal God to him was when he was on the cross. Now, now why is that? Because in that moment, Jesus himself, the second member of the Trinity, had been cut off from God. That was the only time there was not father and son together. Jesus was excluded, but he was excluded and he was pushed out for one reason. And that's so that you and me could be included in. You see, Jesus was not the son so that I could become the son. I became, because of Jesus' death on the cross, I became adopted. That's how I was adopted is because Jesus gave up his position so that I could receive his position. So he was pushed out so that I could be brought in. Now, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this much better than I just did. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God. God making this appeal through us. We implore, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's the thing. Is Jesus sinful? Did Jesus do anything that was sinful? Was there any moment, any time, any thought, any action, anything that Jesus ever did that was sinful? No. So it would be unright for him to be called sin. But what happens in that moment on the cross is Jesus is given the sins of humanity. Now listen. And he accepts them. He takes them. It's not right. It's not, it's not, it's not, this is not fair. It's unjust. He did nothing wrong, yet he takes all the wrongness on himself. That's not fair. But what he's doing is he's exchanging. He's exchanging so that he could give us his righteousness. So the righteousness that's in the Son is given to you. Now, are you righteous? No. I mean, you're, you're not good. You're not holy. You're not perfect. You're not pure. That's not, that's not what you have. But you accept it. In the same way as Jesus accepts the wrong, you have to accept the right. So you receive by faith a gift of righteousness through Jesus. Now what does that do? It reconciles you. It reconciles you to God. And God gives us then that message. And that message is this. We are ambassadors for Christ. Um, God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on, Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So our call constantly in life now is this, telling the humanity, don't stay estranged from God. There's no reason to. Everything, every barrier, every problem, every, every influence, everything that could possibly keep you separated from God has been dealt with in Christ, and now you can be reconciled to God. So come home, come home, come home. Why are you staying? Why are you sleeping outside? Come home. And so can I appeal to you then? As an ambassador for God, I speak on behalf of the embassy. Come home. Come home. Come home. Don't stay away. Like if, 
If there's anything in your life at this moment that's making you feel or believe that you are separate from God for anything in any way, can I just say this? Come home. Just come home. Because everything's paid. Everything's fine. Just come home. Now, that is now your message now. If you've received that message, you are the messenger. You are. You pass on the same message. Tell all of the other kids, come home. It's, so, it's okay. It's time to come home. And so... The second thing, though, is we have to change the way that we treat each other because we are no longer separate. We are not a bunch of individuals in the world. We've become one flock. And so Paul has to write to the church in Galatians and say to them, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I love the way he picks up that phrase. Bite and, con and consume. You ever feel like you're being chewed up by other people? Right? Living on a vampire planet. Everybody's sucking your blood. They want to take the life out of you. They want to take your joy out of you. They want to take your time. They want to take your energy. They want to take, 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 take. Well, that's because we're living in a consumeristic world. And I don't mean consumerism that's just based on modern um, marketing and things like that. Human beings are consumers. We, we take, constantly take. Hey, can you do this for me? I mean, I, I, I'll just say something and then I'll apologize afterwards. <laughs> I'm just a little bit sick and tired of a bunch of young, young adult people who are searching for that other person who will fulfill them. I'm just a little bit sick of it. Of, of young men and young women, or even, let's just say, not young men and young women, looking for the other who is going to give to them all of the things that are going to make them more full, fulfilled in life. You complete me. That line from that movie has wrecked everything. You see, the, the purpose of relationships is not so that you get something, it's so that you give something. And if you're looking for another person that you will take from, guess what their experience of you is? I have to constantly give to this person. They're not happy unless I make them happy. They're not content unless I make them content. They're not loved unless I make them loved. They're constantly taking from me. We're living in a consumeristic society where we think consumerism is normal, but that's only because we haven't been reconciled. We haven't been reconciled to the Father, but once we're reconciled to one another, Paul says we have a choice then. We can choose a different way. You don't need to be a consumer because we can be consumed with ourselves and we can consume others for ourselves or we can let other people consume us. But Paul, Paul says, in Christ we can get off that ride. L listen, some of you, I know, you let other people consume you because that's how you get your sense of worth. You let other people take from you, demand from you, expect from you. And that's how you feel good about yourself because you know that you know, at least you can do this for them. At least you can say that to them. At least you can do be this person for them. At least you can fulfill that. And listen, some of you, you do this at your jobs. You feel like you, you're, you have to meet all the expectations. You have to answer all the questions. And you have to go to the extra extent. And some of you are in relationships where you know that you constantly have to give. Otherwise, that other person will withdraw. And you don't know what's going to happen in withdrawal. You'll be alone if they withdraw. Am I talking to anybody today? 
I don't know, I said I'd apologize later. Still haven't got to that point. <laughs> See, we, we live in this, this balance where we think unless I take or unless something's taken from me, then I don't have a relationship. And Paul says, that's not a relationship. That's not reconciled. There's something better. You can be better as a together, as a separate individual who makes choices. Choices. You don't have to have something taken from you. You can be a giver. You can give. I gotta honestly say that in my relationship with my wife, it is fantastic. I honestly can say that. Before God, before you, we have a fantastic relationship, but we're still human beings, if you know what I mean, right? We can be selfish, self-absorbed, obsessed with our own desire and our own need and our own expectation, our own wants. We can both be like that. And every single time I catch myself out, or usually it's Jody catching me out, being a self-absorbed consumer of her, it hurts her. And she expresses that pain and says, that's not okay for you to speak to me like that, talk to me like that, treat me like that, expect like that of me. I'm a person and I get to choose. And I have to go, yeah, yeah, you're right, of course, you're not, you don't, Jody's, you're not here to fulfill me. No. Like, that's not... <laughs> That's not her job. That's not why God made her. She is not here to fulfill me. Jesus is here to fulfill me. And now I have something to give her. And that means that when she is being the jerk in the equation, and she's not a saint, when she's being the jerk, I don't even have to react to that. I can give to her what she doesn't deserve. Because what Jesus gave me is he gave me a choice. Because I'm not consumed by her. I can give gifts to her. Now, so when we go back to what Jesus said. The reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life, that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my father. And then there is again division among the Jews because of these words. Now, the father and the son, they're making this choice that Jesus must sacrifice himself for the whole world. And there's division about that. And why is division so important? Because there's division here. There's division later on in the book of John, chapter 10. There's division constantly through the book of John. And every time Jesus reveals himself and what he's going to do, there's always people who go, great, that would be wonderful. And there's people going, you can't do that. That's not right. How dare you? But Jesus says, that's the division that comes. The division is really, really important. <clears throat> Jesus said this wonderful statement in, in um, in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to bring a sword. Why, why, why would Jesus, I mean, does anybody kind of think of Jesus as this sword wielding, I mean, other than the book of Revelation, you know, sword wielding, kind of like every story about him, he's, he's healing people. He's not chopping off arms, he's putting arms back on, right? You know, it's Peter that at his, at his at rest chops somebody's ear off. What does Jesus do? He 
pops it back on. Jesus is the fixer. He's the, the, he is the welder together, not the cutter or parter. He is the guy that mends, not the guy who separates. And Jesus says, no, you've got no idea because unless I separate you, you can't be one. Because in the way that the father must be separate from the son so that there's another, you cannot love yourself because that's introverted. People must be separate from you for them to be other. And I love this. That Jesus actually comes to bring division so that there will be somebody else to love. Now, can I just say this? And then I'll get away with it. You, you were raised with cultural expectations on how to behave to people who are wrong or bad or evil or weak or unacceptable or unworthy. People who are shame-like, shame-filled dirty, unclean, bad, you are culturally trained on how to behave to those people. You treat them like others because your culture has trained you to treat them like an other, an outsider, a bad person. And what Jesus comes is he cuts off every cultural thing in your life. He chops it right off. I was working one time with a, with a, a Greek man and this guy, every single time we ended up just mentioning or talking about Turkish people, he would just go on a tirade about Turks. You know, I don't know if that's a, a slang thing to say, but people from Turkey, or Turkey as it's known publicly now, every time they were mentioned, he would just, his mouth would fill up with swear words and he would just blast them and he hated them. Why? Because he's a Cypriot Greek. If you don't know much about history, the island of Cyprus is split between Turkey and Greece. Half of it is Greek and half of it's Turkish. Why? Because the Turkish army invaded and took half of the island. And there are people who are like 60, 70 years later are still full of venom and hatred for the people who would do that to them. Now, listen to this. There is no way in the world that his family would let him love a Turkish person. He's locked into a behavior. He must hate them. There's no choice. You're Turkish, I hate you. There's no other thing. His family would persecute him if he didn't do that. So what Jesus does is this. Jesus, absolutely with his perfection of his sword, cuts off everybody from their heritage so that nobody's opinion for the rest of your life ever guides your choice but one person, Jesus. the father loves the son because he gives up his life. So the father gives his approval to you. When you love the unlovely, when you welcome the shame. Remember before I, I mentioned this, that if anybody really knew who you were really like, if anybody knew your secret, that they would reject you. I want to give you your cultural heritage in Christ. That you are now the universal acceptor. That when people tell you or expose to you or you discover the worst thing about somebody, you are given this. You can love them. You can love them because they are another who needs love. They're part of the lost flock. They're part of the broken. They are the people that you can love. And so Jesus says to us, is the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. 
This is the first and uh, this is great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You're going to have to love your neighbor as yourself. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say thou shalt love yourself. But there's nowhere in social media where it says <laughs> you shall not love yourself. <clears throat> I hear again and again people saying, I will feel better, I will do better, I will be more if I could just love myself. Self-acceptance, self-approval, self-obsessment. Everybody's obsessed with themselves because they feel like I don't have any love to give unless I love myself first and then I have something to give. And God says, no, you're absolutely got that entirely backwards. As long as you're loving yourself, you'll never love God and you'll never love anyone else. And so I give you this freedom. You cannot love yourself, but you can love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I, I want you to try this. Find somebody who you know it's going to be hard for them to accept and love them. Love them long enough that they love you back. Just see what happens. Because love is the one thing that people have no power to resist. They can't. They can't stand against it. It'll wear them down. If, find that one person that you know that if you just give them compassion and understanding that eventually it'll start to bubble over in them and then they'll give it back to you. Because that love that you give will be given back to you. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. And so there's this wonderful freedom that we have. Because Jesus has made everyone else an other you got so many other people to love. And now those people can love you and make you feel like you're part of the flock too. So Father, as we finish our time here today, I know that, I know that you love me even when I preach bad like this, but I know that your message here, Lord, is to draw other people into your flock so that they can experience what it's like to be part of you. And I know, Jesus, you came for that purpose. You came to die and be resurrected so that we could become part of your flock, your family, to become sheep with you. And you can be our shepherd. And even though you don't need us, you chose us, and you want to be here for us. And so my prayer this morning is that any person that is not home, has not come home to you, Lord, that you would bring them home to you now. And whatever reason that they have felt that is a, a reason that has excluded them, that, Lord, that you would help them to see that you have done everything to reconcile them to you. And so that they would know that there is grace upon grace, there is forgiveness on forgiveness and love on love, and then as they come home to you, that you will accept them and that you will treat them as though they are part of your own family. If that's you right now, why don't you open up your heart and come home? Come home to God. God made Jesus sin so that you could be made righteous. Accept it. Accept the gift that he wants to give you. And then reject the sin and place it on Christ on the cross and say thank you. And as you're considering this, 
Consider what it's like to become accepted even when you weren't acceptable. And so I pray, Father, that as we think about this, that we would start thinking about the other people in our lives that are doing unacceptable things, behaving in unacceptable ways, who are hurting and alone, people who are different from us and rejected by others. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see that this is our chance to be your ambassadors and to include them. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to love our neighbors as though they were the people needing the same love that we needed. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us merciful and gracious and loving towards others so that we can finally be together because life is so much better together. And if any person here, if you have an offense, somebody who's sinned against you or offended you or pushed out of your life, then I ask you now, will you forgive them as Christ has forgiven you? And will you choose, choose yourself, no one's making you, but choose yourself like Christ. Choose because the Father loves this. Choose to forgive them and choose to find a way to bring them back into your life. Choose. Don't let anyone take. Choose. And say, Father, give me the grace to love people who are unlovely. Father, help me to avoid people who are just going to abuse. They're just going to be terrible for me. No, let those people, Lord, help me to put good boundaries with them. But the people who have been excluded because they were, they did something unclean to me. Lord, I pray that you would help me to have grace to love them and include them. And help me to find the outsider, Lord, the person who needs to be brought in so that I can be with them and love them and show grace to them, Father. Lord, we want to make sure that we are doing the things that Jesus does and loves. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet? Let's express our adoration to God for what he's done for us through Christ on the cross.